0: hi secreters I uh, thought I would do just a little private video today outside in this beautiful fall weather um, normally I'm doing a YouTube thing but we're gonna we're gonna keep it low-key today and just keep it on the down low for our own group so I uh, I put out a question earlier to see if people wanted to do like a chat um, I realize Sunday afternoons kind of hard because we have various religious observances and also uh football. <laughs> so um I thought I would just do a quick video for the ones of you that maybe aren't watching football or doing something else and wanted to learn a little bit about poem three. So it's interesting with the Japanese hint book that Byron says um This is easy, it makes it too easy, so I won't give you a hint to the Japanese interpreter. So, obviously people presumed this poem had a lot to do with the Declaration of Independence, which was slightly true, which I think is where some people for the last 30 plus years tried to make a connection to Philadelphia. So as we know now, when it was found, it was found in Boston, Langoni Park. And of course I just posted a picture of the Etruscan cenerary that you could see that was used by the Etruscan people, which were the original, uh, some of the original tribes of, of Italy, tribes of people. So since Byron didn't give us a hint and now we're able to walk through this ourselves, um, thanks to Jason Krupat making the find, we can kind of think about it and work it in reverse. So, and I will read as I go along, but so if Thucydides is north of Xenophon, so that is interesting because, you know, we know now he was talking about Thucydides and Xenophon that is posted on the library there in Boston. Also interesting to point out that that's actually tying into the second uh, a second cask, which would be the New York cask, because clearly uh, there is at one point what would become potentially um, a Xenophon in New York, where they had uh, where we've looked up the poem, I should say the the excerpt of the writer that talked about the. Thucydides in Boston and the Xenophon in New York. His name escapes me right now, so I'm going to have to get back to that. But, so anyways, you can kind of see that they're connected there. Um, It says, take five steps. So, we know that Byron loves to take lines and change them around in these poems, right? And he even says in the hint book that you may not know if one sentence is a part of the one before it or the one after it. And we also know that he got that idea and writing style from Edgar Bergen, okay, who wrote uh, lots of different uh, publishings with books, including like a satirical, comical book of quotations and um, things that he wrote about kind of utilizing his Jewish background with Yiddish language oftentimes in what I'm studying with Yiddish is how it can be kind of switched around and and you get the meaning but it's almost in like a backwards way so he says take five steps and it says in the area of his direction So, I know a lot of people have made the presumption that they were talking about in the direction of Columbus. We could talk about the direction of Paul Revere, which we're thinking, you know, when he had to come down the stairs and notice that the, you know, what the lamp lights were, if the British were coming or not. But what's interesting is take five steps. So, this has held up a lot of people, and I think even including Jason Krupat. And from my own research, what I have found is he's implying the stance at the baseball field because when, um, if you look back in baseball terminology and we know he loves baseball, we know the cask was at the baseball field and there's probably more casks on other baseball fields, um, five steps is the batter stance. So to me, that makes the most sense in the world. Like, Because if you're standing there at home plate, right? And he says, "Are oh, you're gonna take five steps. Well, those five steps are when you swing. So when you swing out on the fifth step, the cask would have been in front of home plate. So that's how I read that. I don't know about anybody else, but that's the way I interpret it. Um, of course, the green tower of lights, he's talking about the bridge that you could see from the field. Uh, in the middle section people are talking that he meant the middle field out of the three that are there. Um, near those who passed the Coliseum so we know that there was the Coliseum there in the ice skating rink with metal walls he says so it's telling you metal walls could be old sides. he's kind of implying. Um, Face the water. So as we go through here, so let's go back. Thucydides north of Xenophon, that's a visual clue, right? Take five steps. That's a visual, not only a visual, but you have to think, right? This is a literary slash baseball analogy clue. We have to go in the area of his direction. So the area would probably potentially be Paul Revere, right? Because that makes the most sense. Um, The Green Tower of Lights, visual clue, right? But in the area of his direction, the line before it is actually the mental clue. Like we have to think, what person is he talking about? So we know now he was talking about Paul Revere, but it also sounds like it's Paul Revere too when you get to the bottom of the poem. So then, um, near those who pass the Colosseum. So in that regard, we're still looking for the Colosseum. So we're still looking for that visual clue. And then the metal walls. So this could obviously be a visual as well as a in envisioning kind of you have to think up metal walls in regards to old iron sides, cause you would have been facing that. So he's saying, you know, the metal walls, then we have, cause we're facing the water. So we'd have to face the water first, right? So those lines actually are switched. Um, you have to face the water first. Then it makes sense to see the metal walls, right? And so then you also see the green tower of lights. So that's the visual clue that we've seen before. So he's trying to pull it all together for you. You're back to the stairs. Again, you're going to look behind you and make sure, okay, yep, there's the staircase. So there's another visual clue. He says, feel at home. So we know he's telling us feel at home, right? Home plate. And then he says all the letters here to see. So again, feel at home should have actually probably been the last sentence there. But instead we have one, two, three, four, five more sentences that follow it. So he says, when I say sentences, lines, feel at home, all the letters are here to see. So we know now JJP talked about the letters that were on the flags of old Ironsides. And then again, visual, Um, 18th day. So that's literary clue, 12th hour, lit, lit by lamplight. So we know these things as well as in Truth Be Free are implying a literary clue. So the literary slash historical clue, which kind of in Byron's mind would have been an easy given, right? Now looking back, we would have said, oh yeah, Paul Revere, Midnight Ride, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Right? Cause there we have our poet, right? So, cause each poem seems to have a reference to a writer, whether that writer was, um, you know, an American writer, uh, an epic poetist, um, all of these verses have some sort of connection to a writer. 18th day, 12th hour. Lit by lamplight, in truth be free. What a fantastic find for Jason Krupat on this because when we think about the painting itself, we see there were other clues that were mentioned with the poem and so we had the Boston Pops uh, which was the bird which honestly when JJP talks about wishing that he could have like redone the paintings a little bit I can understand why because I think he would have had more expression put on the bird with the bubble so it was maybe even closer so it could have looked like it was popping something of that nature because I can tell even from an artist standpoint Um, my mom is a wonderful painter. She studied under Bob Ross, shout out to Bob Ross. Um, but to understand how he talks about how he was really kind of immature, you know, coming out of art school and doing these paintings for Byron then. And while they, I mean, he still has obviously tremendous talent, tremendous gift, like amazing work, amazing artist. but it It definitely, you could see where he probably would have pulled more of that together for us. And in some ways, I think he feels regretful that some of them didn't have a little bit more action in their presence in the painting and how it spoke to you. So in the painting, we have the Etruscan Cinerary, which Italian early tribes used it as like you know funeral burial kind of thing which is also interesting because if we really think about it in a literary aspect if Byron's burying these casks and they're all kind of very similar to what would kind of be an Etruscan funerary urn it's also implying that with these fairies when they left you know, a lot of them were mistreated as we're reading about indigenous people and the immigrant groups and their religious persecutions. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of rediscovering their spirit. And so when you find that key, you, you get to, you've done the work, you've done the studying, you have obtained the knowledge in order to understand that that key represents that spirit so interestingly though with Byron he puts so many layers on things and when he talks about fairy secrets coming twos you know there could be two different immigrant groups that are being focused on like he says with the Irish and the Scottish we have to really think about um, two different immigrant groups and then you have to really kind of decipher which one he's really trying to focus in on while highlighting and educating you on the other um, and in fact, multiple, which is why it makes, it makes the book a little bit more mind-bending, as I've said before. So when we look at the painting as well, you know, you have the other visual clues, you have the porthole for old Ironsides, you have the flags that were painted on her dress. And so he's, you know, JJP's tying in, you know, the letters for all to see. So really the painting is the roadmap, right? Um, the verses, you know, you're reading, and then it all kind of gets tied in together uh, with what you're seeing on the map. And so we have to approach each painting and each verse in a similar way. And clearly some of the paintings don't have as much detail or as much meaning. Uh, in them as the Boston, you know, and Chicago and really Cleveland too. I mean, they were very um, ornate and intricate and some of the clues were painted a little bit more in depth than in, in the other paintings. And one of the paintings that sticks out to me being extremely hard is the Dutch painting. You know, when we look at the Dutch painting, we see this Uh, basically a visual of Rembrandt right so Rembrandt was the Dutch painter he really kind of revolutionized the self-portrait and at a time in the mid to mid early 1600s timeframe and I'll show you uh, as we go along here um, he started painting himself when they first developed the mirror. (laughs) So, Rembrandt would have a mirror and he would paint himself in the mirror and then he knew that when the print or when the painting would go to print as it was printed then it would be once again reversed to show his actual sitting position it made it more difficult to paint his hands. So what he would do is oftentimes either only put his hand down or you wouldn't really very often see his hands. And it's important to note that in this painting because the hands are actually very much present. And um, I'm having to really kind of consider why they're there and what they mean because most of Rembrandt's paintings and his self-portraits, as he painted them throughout his life, he would, he started at an early age. And they say that truly he painted these paintings, uh, up until his death at various decades or intervals as he aged. And also what's interesting about this is when he taught art class, there were many times he had the students repaint him. So at one point in time, they thought there were like 90 some Rembrandt paintings of him in very similar poses to this exactly. Uh, When he began painting himself in these lights, it really took off and more and more painters then were trying to replicate what he was doing. So that's why in this era, you see so many of these paintings that have almost the same exact setting same coloring um just different faces (laughs) so what they did determine though after a long period of time is that he was in fact signing some of the paintings for the students that he thought did very well and so they determined that some of those obviously weren't his artwork so they've now narrowed it down to about nine nine paintings and self-portraits that they thought that rembrandt had done And of course these are in various uh, museums. We have one that is in Pasadena, California. There is one at the Met in New York. And so um, it's important to note why JJP would have used a styling like that, right? So Rembrandt's painting these in the 1600s. So Byron's telling you that in this possible painting in this clue um the in the written clue that it could be having some kind of tie to this time frame this era right because the witch you know we have the puritans and all the craziness going on in the in the colony in boston and john winthrop you know having everybody kind of coalesce to becoming this one giant uh colony underneath his kind of puritanical rule and all of this you know was in the 1600s so you know the question is does Byron change up the formulation you know does he change the soup with every painting or are they all based exactly around in the 1600s? Which I kind of tend to think would be the case because at the beginning of the book, he says the story happens over, what, 300 years ago. So 1980, right? So go back 300 years and where does that put us? 1680, right? So if we're a little over that, we're looking somewhere in that vicinity. Now, the other layer is then not only are you going to know the story, right? Then we're going to figure out the attachment to the gem. So in the gem for the Italian painting, we have, you know, it's the Italian painting as we know. Byron says it's this month. Here's the gem, Peridot. We put it all together to the math, right? And then same kind of thing. We have to understand what the twist is with these paintings. We have the English witch, Puritanical, Boston, John Winthrop, uh, Increase Mather, uh, who was the kind of the head of the church that wanted to burn people at the stake. Um, We have all this history tied into that one into the witch, right? So then we look at something like this and we say, well, wait a minute, you know, if Rembrandt is Dutch, And he's done these self-portraits and pretty much, you know, made it a very cool and hip thing to do. Um, How is this person a Dutch person? And we also have the Dutch gem. And so that's where things change. Because while this is painted in the likeness of a Dutchman, while it's painted in the likeness of Rembrandt, the face, this is all someone else. And that's who we have to figure out, who it is and what it implies. Because it can't be just a Dutch person and the Dutch gem, right? Because if that's the case, then the witch in Boston should have been some kind of Italian goddess. And we didn't have that. And so considering that that may be the start of where some of these poems and paintings get harder is where it's going to challenge us to figure out who that person is what that being is and what it represents separate and aside from the gemstone unless unless Byron has said after the third painting we're going to put them all in the same likeness which means it all has the same representative meaning, not only the vision and the painting, but the gemstone too. And I can't really see that. And I don't think that he would change up, you know, the ingredients in the soup to do that because he said, very secrets come in too. So we have to learn two separate lessons for each painting. Then the twist gets even more interesting because Paul Revere was a French Huguenot. John Winthrop was an English colonist. Increase Mather, English colonist. Um he's the fundamental basis for why we had the witch trials, okay? His puritanical beliefs. So then we have to think in another level what and how that transfers to the verses. Because the verse, you know, we're mentioning Paul Revere, his ride, we're alluding to it through Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. There's our poet, our writer in that verse, uh, who was of English background also, by the way. So then you begin to think, hmm, well maybe the poem actually is talking about something else. Let's say it's talking about Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, what what if we're reading a poem and it's taking us to some Roosevelt Park and Roosevelt, you know, by the way, was a different immigrant background but it has no affiliation with painting or the gym, which is why it can be ultra confusing. It's three separate things. And that's where your theories should start. So if you have questions, want to know more, let's talk about it. Follow me on my YouTube channel if you want secret deciphered and we can watch videos and, uh, talk about things there as well but I hope I've left you with something to think about in that maybe maybe the poems mean one thing the image means one thing and the gem means another let me know what you think hope you guys have a great week thanks for tuning in very on